this is Carl Beach. Now he's got hair tonight. He's not on the photo I've got, and he's wondering what I'm going to say. Carl is a UK-based evangelist and church planner. That's true. That's how I met him all those years ago. He leads Edge Ministries and is press president of Christian Vision for Men. Now, blokes, you need to get along to this event. That's all I'm going to say. All I hear is about this tent in the middle of the field. I'm sure he might share something about that a little bit later on. I've got this whole diatribe to read about Carl, but what I want to tell you is this, my knowledge of him rather than what I'm reading. This man is passionate about the kingdom of God. He's passionate about reaching people with the good news of Jesus. And he's done it over a long while now. That says an awful lot about his faithfulness in the God who is faithful. He's been through some dark times and some high times, but always has found himself resting in Jesus Christ. The beautiful thing is he is definitely an evangelist. And tonight we will definitely hear that. I'm convinced I know that will be the case. But the thing that makes me smile is that what you don't know, Carl, is that we together in the Salvation Army have been exploring our missional DNA again. One of the things through the Pioneer piece we've been exploring is, so who are we and what are we about? And the thing that's come out, Carl, you will be encouraged. I share this with you. The thing that's come out time and time again is that the Salvation Army believes Jesus is Lord. That's what we state that's the biggest selling point of the missional DNA of the Salvation Army. And if you don't know that to be true or understand that, we'll take you on some courses to explore that and train that with you. But, Carl, it's my privilege and pleasure to count you as a friend, to introduce you to some of the pioneers in the Salvation Army, some other friends within the Salvation Army as well. You can do what you like. One thing we are going to say, if you've got any questions of anything he says, we may not do tonight's session in the same way we've done the other sessions. We're not going to. He's open to ask any questions and answers. Type in the chat box, listen to what he has to say, and then at the end we'll respond in whatever way we feel necessary. Carl, good man, over to you. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, evening, everybody. Uh, good to be with you. Um, it's a great privilege to be speaking to you um, for reasons that will become clear um, as we progress through what we've got to share with you. Just to start with, I'm... I'm um, going to share a few thoughts on innovating within church structures and there's a whole bunch of, you know, journey behind that. But the principal thing for me is I'm a, you know, I'm a 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2 guy. For I resolve to know nothing amongst you except Christ and be crucified. That, that's actually all I've got. <laughs> Short talk. I haven't got much more than that. Because I just fundamentally believe the gospel works. Uh, and since first pioneering a church on a council estate in 1996, I kind of stuck to that, really. Um, but I did realise along the way there are a few um, uh, key strategic things that we can do if we're courageous enough to make bold changes. So let me tell you to start with about the bloke up my road. I moved to an area called Staveley in, in Derbyshire. There's actually two Staveleys in the UK. There's a very picturesque Staveley uh, towards the Lake, uh, Lake District, full of clotted cream tea shops and beautiful views. And there's a Staveley in Derbyshire, which is fundamentally battered and <laughs> pretty deprived. And my wife and I moved there uh, 20 months ago. 
to pioneer long-term work in the local community because as much as I'm doing stuff nationally, I, I don't think national stories come out of nowhere. You've got to have a local story before you have a national one. And you, you've got to have a place to be role modelling and, and to keep current. You know, I got a bit tired of hearing conference speakers who are telling stories from conferences they're at. You know, <laughs> I, I want a story from being on the ground. So my mate Sean was um, uh, in the in the Paris Parachute Regiment for 32 years and fought in every major conflict the UK has been involved in during that time and was involved in some seriously heroic episodes. Um, he was in an elite unit and not a believer, not a Christian. And I met him because he came into one of our, he lives in Stavely up the road from me, as I said. He came into one of our local projects, which I'm going to tell you how that evolved recently. And um, he was suffering from, severe PTSD, actually chronic, uh, nauseous every single morning, living behind closed curtains, couldn't face life. Um, we met him, we got alongside him, we helped him. And long story short, for a seemingly miraculous series of events, uh, he, he came to Christ. In fact, it happened over a weekend where uh, I, I invited him on a, on a pastoral journey with me. I just got to know him through our, our drop-in cafe and community meals we do. And I said, why don't you come on the road with me? I'm preaching in Buckinghamshire in the morning. And then I'm going to watch some evangelists do a mixed martial artist in the evening, which on, on reflection might not have been the best course of action for a man suffering from combat PTSD. But then I'm an evangelist, not a pastor. So um, he came on the road with me. He heard me preach the gospel in the morning. And then he watched people beat each other up in the evening for six hours. But along the way, he met these combat martial artists who are passionate followers of Christ, trying to bring the gospel into that world and winning belts and all sorts of stuff. Really ferocious gospel guys. And they came up to Sean and went, one of them said, my life changed and I met Jesus Christ on the mat in a dojo. And he changed my life. I went from being a man of violence to a man of God. And I thought, well, you're still battering people in a ring, though. <laughs> anyway, and it's really took this guy. That night when he got home at two in the morning, he had a dream. He had a dream. that He wrote three things on a whiteboard. One was airborne soldier. The next one was injustice. And the next one was identity. And he, and he never contacts me in the morning. or didn't because he, he found mornings terrible. He, he then... Um, came to see me that morning, eight o'clock for coffee, told me about the whiteboard dream. And I said, well, that's funny. A month ago, I bought a whiteboard. He said, well, this whiteboard was standing next to a small chair in a rectangular building. I said, well, that's funny. I bought a whiteboard. My wife asked why, because I never write anything down. And, and, and I said, but it's standing next to a small chair, unused, with three unused pens, because I felt compelled to buy it. And it's in my office, which is rectangular. And he came and he sat down and he wrote, Airborne soldier in justice and identity. Two hours later, he came back into my office after a stroll through the Bluebell Woods, in which he started to hear bird song for the first time in months because his life had shut down. He couldn't hear the birds sing. He was so traumatized. I led him to Christ in the woods. He came back and wiped off the three things on a whiteboard. And I've got it next to me. He wrote, Sean Partridge, son of God, father and friend, and reestablished his identity in Christ. One life at a time broken man and now he, he tells everyone he, he tells everyone i know jesus i met the lord he's using that language already that's the ultimate aim to take broken people to wholeness 
And we call Edge Ministries reaching forgotten people in forgotten places. That's all I'm about. But the question is, how do we get there? So that this is multipliable, it continues to happen, we keep presenting the gospel, and we have a discipleship framework that works. Now, I've been planting churches since 1996, and I've used the same model until recently. I, I kind of had a feeling that the traditional model of church wasn't working. I know that sounds a bit pragmatic, but I'm all out for reaching uh, the forgotten people. And for me, that's a place like Stavely. I only work in very deprived communities, pretty much. With my CVM work, I work everywhere. With Edge Church planting, I'm going to the places that no one else wants to go. No one wants to come to Stavely. Uh, 18,000 people, there were less than 60 people going to church. 18,000 people, less than 60 people going to church. That's crazy. In the UK today, 45% of people here have zero qualifications. 35% um, of kids are, listening, are living massively under the poverty line. Loads of kids are out of school. Extremely high incidences here of autism and, and low IQ issues. Um, there are people with learning difficulties, all that kind of stuff. A lot of problems with heart defects, congenital conditions, and rare cancers. Why? We've established recently that the, uh, the powers that be put a chemical factory in Stavely. It's called Stavely Works. It dealt in benzenes, which is the, the most toxic chemical you can handle and one of the most prolific causes of autism. So this community where this would never happen, dare I say, apologies if you live in Surrey, it's the first place to come to mind. A factory like that would not be dumped in a wealthy part of Surrey. They stick it near the old coal mines in Derbyshire and they wrecked it, generational injustice. And no major church planting movement will come to these places. There's no students, no money, no professionals. There's not, not much going for it. And, and it's shabby and grey and bleak, uh, really, except we absolutely love it. Uh, I love living here. It's fantastic. The people are beautiful. Beside that point, what we do know is that sitting in rows and listening to projected content for an hour and a half, one hour on a Sunday is not going to cut it for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and, and although I've been accused of being a deconstructionist, um, I'm actually not. I looked at what worked and what didn't and thought, I need to start again. We've got to find a model that, that enables us to preach the gospel and then grow people and multiply leaders. Um, so that's really what I've been about. But there's a few prophetic things in there as well. So. Uh, if I could use that language. Um, I am, to all intents and purposes, a way, I came to Christ in a Brethren church and then um, was pretty much asked to leave because I started praying in tongues by reading the Bible, which I know is controversial, but that's actually what happened. And then I went on a journey from reform to charismatic and house church and then back to Brethren stuff. And, and I kind of mixed it all up. And then along the way, the Lord intercepts me and more recently I had a dream and in this dream I was um uh I was trying to preach to a church and I said something I don't normally do which is announce the bible reading at the start and I said everybody please turn to Amos 9 in this dream and and this woman went what 
I went, turn to Amos 9. And she went, I don't understand you. In this vivid dream. I said, Amos 9. She said, what's that mean? I went, it's a book in the Bible. Amos 9. And this went on about 12 times. And in the end, I went, A-M-O-S 9. And I woke up. Two o'clock in the morning. And I said, oh, Lord, if that's you, you'll remind me of that in the morning. I woke up at six o'clock, woke my wife up, and I went, Amos 9, does that mean anything to you? She went, go away, six o'clock. So I went downstairs, and I used to do Bible in a year, um, but I haven't done it for a few years, so I couldn't remember what was in Amos 9. Truth be known, staggering down the stairs at six in the morning, I thought, is there an Amos 9? I couldn't remember. Anyway, when I got to it and read it, this is pertinent to what's coming up. It talks about it talks about destruction coming on the house of Israel, and that the, the house of Israel is going to be the nation of Israel is going to be sifted and sieved. But it says not a pebble is going to fall to the ground. I God is looking for holiness and true faith, uh, and so He says you won't be destruction won't overcome you, but I'm going to sift you. And then it says um, I'm going to restore David's shelter. And David's shelter is a place of constant worship, intercession, and justice. It was a powerhouse, a powerhouse of prayer and worship and holiness. And then he says that when this happens, he says the plowman will overtake the reaper. Basically, revival. Like there'll be so many people coming to Christ, it's just going to be, uh, you know, you won't be able to manage it. And then he says, and new wine will flow from the mountains. And that really struck me. I mean, I, it really blew my socks off. And I thought, wow, God's looking for holiness. He's looking for true faith. He's looking for heartfelt words of intercession, fused with justice and mission. No separation in all these terms. It's, it's saying that flows out from us. And, and we need a new wineskin in order to contain this new wine. Because the old wineskin's not working. Have you ever wondered, if you're a leader, no, you are, why good, godly, gracious people could be so cruel in leaving reviews about your preaching or the worship. It's because we set up a show and people leave reviews. The other astonishing thing is you think, well, I've been teaching the Bible to these people for 20 years. Why are they not living it? Well, if you think about it, if you preach a half hour sermon and you're a really good preacher, most Christians go on average twice a month. It might be different in the core, but most Christians go to church about twice a month. Your church is under 300 people. Uh, that means you've probably got a job one of those times on a rotor. Um, so you're probably listening on average to about five hours content a year in preaching. And maybe you'll go to a small group. So actually, we're not very content rich in the way we're discipling people if we're just relying on the model of a sermon. And half of the people are not going every month anyway. That's an issue. And then we've got the issue of broken working class people don't easily sit in rows and they've not been given a voice. So they just sit there passively receiving stuff. A lot of it they don't understand. And our methodology of training excludes those sort of people from leadership because they can't wrestle in an academic environment. So I started to look at all this and I started to think, why is it that 80% of the UK church are graduates? That's a really serious problem. Not knocking you if you've got a degree. I've got two. Most ministers have. But why is 80% of the UK church university class when it's good news to the poor? 
And I know people say, well, you could be you could be spiritually poor but rich. But if you're materially poor and spiritually poor, you've got a double whammy there. And yet that's where we're placing least emphasis in the church. Probably not the Salvation Army, which is why I love them so much. But but it's but it's a serious issue. So I started to grapple with all of this stuff when we moved to Stable. In fact, I founded Edge Ministries maybe six years ago now and started to develop a, a church planting methodology. So this is what I've done. Let's cut to the chase. I've fused several things together. I've fused principles. I'm not just saying this. Andrew would have heard me say this before, probably, and I've been all over it on social media. The principles of early Salvation Army when you were the skeleton army, when Booth was getting bricks chucked at his head, probably by Christians for preaching the gospel, and massive heart for the poor. I am, I am moderately obsessed by that. I'm a rampant gospel preacher. I keep Jesus front and centre, and I, I'm all out for reaching the poor for various reasons I've got time to go into. In fact, last week, I hosted a delegation of eight local politicians, and two things happened. The Labour politician said, I really like it that you don't force, you don't, didn't say force, said, you don't make, you don't declare your faith in everything you do. And I went, no, I do. I said, no, I do. You're wrong. I said, the only reason I'm doing it is Jesus. And she went, oh, really? I went, oh, yeah. I said, I'm not just trying to help people. Ultimately, like, the ultimate help I can give people is telling them about Christ. And she looked all offended, but at the end of it, she came home and she said, here's my card if you need any money at the community fund. <laughs> the other thing that happened was the deputy CEO of the council said, um, he said, oh, I've got this, this feeling, this warm feeling. When I'm talking to you, when I'm walking around your centre, I've got this warm feeling. I went, oh, it's Holy Spirit. He went, what? I said, oh, it's God. He said, is it? I went, oh, yeah, it is, 100%. He said, oh, wow. And I said, I'll read the Bible if you want and explain it. He went, could you? I went, yeah, absolutely. And I told him what we're doing for our version of the church. He's going to come along with his PA. Because <laughs> actually, Romans 1.16, I'm unashamed of the gospel for it's a power of God for salvation. So obsessive early salvation army. I'm also obsessed with early Methodism, primitive Methodism. When Wesley planted a church, he didn't just plant a church. He planted a, an orphanage, a school. He did health stuff for people. He even wrote a book called The Wesleyan Physic for the Cure of Every Ailment Known to Man. He wasn't a doctor. He probably killed thousands of people for his quack medicine. But his heart was to help people. So I love that. Don't, don't get the wrong impression here, but I'm also very fascinated by the principles of the Sikh Gurdwara. If you go to a Sikh temple any day, any time of day or night, you get a hot meal. Rampant hospitality. And... And I, I, that really gripped me. So I fused the elements of that, which I'll tell you about in a bit. I'm also quite obsessed with the Bruderhof community, uh, not with the way that they, they, they're quite complementary, not about that, but the way they do community life, the way that they get everyone around the table and eat together. And when you join, you get a job, you become part of a family and you share life in community. I thought, well, we might not have big plots of land, but we can foster some of the elements of that. And I'm also quite uh, part of my journey was rampant charismatic house church. So that art for worship and seeing the power of God at work, but word and spirit. So I've fused those elements together. So what I've done is this. I've created or creating open living rooms where people are always welcome and they can get their help and intervention that they need. These could be in redundant church buildings. They could be within existing church buildings. They could be 
community centres that we purchase, whatever, or working in partnership with churches to help make this happen with Edge. But we create a genuine open living room, sofas, tea and coffee on tap, snacks, reading material and stuff. And then one day a week or afternoon a week, we hold a community cafe in our centres with free home-baked cakes and free tea and coffee. It's all free. Uh, you could debate why, but we took that choice and it works really well for us. And on tap are all the interventions that people need. And we found that housing help, benefits help, debt help, community detox, socially prescribed stuff like community gardens, um, bereavement and loss counselling, all of that stuff happens in, in those open living rooms. But on a Thursday afternoon, we have a, we have a fully trained advisor in each place for at least housing benefits and debt. Then as we grow, we put the other stuff in. So we are basically finding great local ministries and helping them scale up to become national or work with national ministries. The time is now where we've got to work together and pool our resources. So we form alliances with other great ministries and share data and all that stuff to help the most vulnerable and do it at cost. It's super cheap. And then what we do, we, we, within that centre, we operate a community, which is our version of church, where we commit to do several things. We, we commit to uh, eat together and we break bread. We take communion as part of that meal. And I base that on really wrestling through Corinthians uh, 1 and 2. Um, we follow a simple rule of life. Uh, this wasn't there by design these always here I'll, I'll read it out to you in a minute um we commit to serve our wider community because to live a life of service um is is a really good pathway to healing if you're broken because most broken people get really obsessed with thinking about their own needs and problems one of the best way to get out of that is to start to live for other people and and to live a life of service and we commit to keep the sabbath holy but we don't meet on sundays we rest on the Sabbath and we, we might walk to and pray together or meet in each other's homes. But it doesn't really happen in working class communities or meet in the open living room. But we don't have a meeting where we sit in rows. We teach the Bible through conversation discussion regularly. Could go on for an hour, two hours. We have worship nights where we worship for an hour, hour and a half. David's tent. We go for it rather than like 10 minutes squeezed in and a talk, then another five minutes. We worship full on. And we eat together and we share life, we break bread, and we follow this simple um, discipleship structure. We call, it's a rule of life, but we call it <laughs> stuff we do, because no one knows what a rule of life is in Stavely and throughout other places where we work in. But we talk about stuff a lot. Now, some new Frontiers leaders collared me. I was doing a training day session for national leaders in New Frontiers. And they went, what's all this not meeting on Sundays then? What, what do you do? What's your, what is church do then? I went, well, we, this is exactly what I said. I went, well, we eat together. We live in community as best we can. We break bread. We serve the poor, minister to them. We worship God wholeheartedly. We teach the Bible and disciple people. And we run all kinds of community interventions. We proclaim the gospel and pursue salvation for all people. And then we rest on the Sabbath. What do you do? Because that's, that's, that's actually the biblical model. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you must meet on the Lord's Day. It actually says meet daily. 
So it's not a biblical, it's not an argument to be had. What we've done is we got locked into essentially a Victorian model and, and made it a, a sacred thing at our peril. Uh, when COVID happened, it was a welcome intervention as far as I'm concerned, because it made us start to innovate rather than replicate what we'd always been doing. But I said to my friend, the danger is we're going to rush back to Egypt. What I mean by that is when the people of Israel were being freed from slavery, you know, they had this the promised land in front of them, this glorious thing. But then it got a bit tough along the way. So oh, if only we were back in Egypt in slavery where it wasn't working for us, but, it was, you know, at least everything was supplied. It's a tough journey, Reformation territory. It's long and it's painful, and you get misunderstood. Um, but every so often in history, you need to go through that long and painful process, but not everyone's prepared to make the journey. And so we get locked into traditional patterns instead. Now, I'm not against Sunday meetings if that works for people. In fact, I'm so chilled out about it. I simply say to our guys, hey, you want to keep the Sabbath holy by going to a church meeting? Here's a list of churches you can go to. I'll promote everyone else. I just, what I'm trying to do is live as Christ-centered community. I, I always eat on a Thursday night in our open living room in Staveley. It's a bring and share meal with communion. I'll take communion if I was on my own. I'd eat my own shepherd's pie because I want people to know that I'm always going to be there. But it's a grower. Like we're seeing people come in, new people, every week. And then they come to their worship nights. And they come to the Bible teaching. And, and they, they meet Christ. And they get discipled. And I'm not precious. I'm not trying to put bums on seats. I'm trying to reach the lost. So I don't actually mind if they end up going somewhere else. But invariably they don't because they build community. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be Christ-centered community within the community with open doors and open lives, but, but quite sacramental, elements of monasticism, elements of Pentecostal stuff, elements of hospitality from the Sikhs, and the disciplines and structures of Methodism and radical holiness, actually, of the early Salvation Army. So this, this sifting thing, you know, um, I felt God call me out of nowhere to quit alcohol seven months ago. And, and amazing reactions I've, I've had from that. But I, I felt that there was, this is a side issue, but I think it's part of it, that there was endemic alcohol dependency amongst church leaders in the UK. Because I've mixed in those circles and I've seen it. So I thought I needed to call it out because God's looking for a holy church. And I know there are loads of issues, gambling, overeating, blah, 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 blah. But actually, if alcohol is discovered today, you and I all know it'd be banned. It's a toxic killer. So I decided to quit. And since then, I've got 170 UK church leaders who joined a confidential group called Sober Leaders or Exploring Sobriety or Gone Sober or put their hands up and say they're struggling with addiction. And it's all come out of this Edge Reformation piece, the Amos 9 and Walk in the Narrow Path of Matthew 7. So... That's that's in a sense where I'm at and what we're doing and what we're trying to multiply. And the beauty of this is I can raise up a local leader super quick. I can take someone like, for example, Sean, the ex-power. I can decipher him how to run a community meal, how to take communion, how to baptize people. 
I could teach him how to teach stuff we do as a simple discipleship instructor. And in a basic level, I can get him to set up a micro version down the road for 20, 30 people. And over time, really train him up. I think I can get someone from coming to Christ to leading an edge community in under a year. Because it's part of their training. Um, the, the stuff we do all the life, I'll just read you, is I'll ask Jesus to guide my daily decisions, which is very simple when you think about it. But actually, it's time to empower people. So when people come to me and they say, my neighbor's doing my nutting, what do I do about it? I say, what do you think you should do? Here's some Bible verses. Go away, have a think about what you should do and come and tell me what you think. What if I disagree with you, they'll say? I go, I don't mind. Work it out. It's all right. What do you think about homosexuality, Carl? Well, here's some Bible verses. What do you think? What if I disagree with you? That's okay. We all journey. Journey out. I'll ask Jesus to guide me. Let the gospel guide you. I think the days are gone where we set the meta-narrative on every issue. And we've got to let people journey and discover, except not every issue is going to be sorted out this side of eternity. We've got to empower people to think. That's the best way to raise up leaders too. The next one is I'll be generous with my words and my stuff, which is a key biblical principle coming out of Romans 12, 9 onwards, etc. I love others like Jesus loves me. It's basically half the Beatitudes. And I'll read my Bible and try my best to live out with the Holy Spirit's help. And then there's a space for two or three of your own. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to make up with my sister. And you disciple people to them. And as they do it, you tick them off and give them a new card. It's a simple discipleship framework. So when we have our community meal, we always start with communion. I know there's different views in this, and that's fine. So not everyone does this, but ours, we start with communion, during which I preach the gospel for five minutes, whoever's leading their edge community. And then as people, they go to a table and take it, then I say, go and get the food. It's a bring and share meal, which means you can have slow roast lamb and spaghetti hoops. It's very variable. But it's a bring and share feast. So some people are taking communion, other people are eating slow roasted lamb and pizza. And then what I say is during the meal, talk about your highs and lows. Talk about how you've been generous this week. Speak about where God's led you. And then after the main course, someone will give a little talk or a testimony. And then we'll pray and we'll hang back if anyone wants to chat. The kids will take part too. They can do a pin drop. We get the, and what that's doing is you're teaching families to eat together, to get round tables together. Everything we do points to a table, actually, and the table points to Christ. That's the methodology. Everything we do points to getting people at a table and the table points unashamedly to Christ. That's it. With a few simple structures based around it. So the questions were, what is churchianity and what's Christianity? What works in broken communities but still gets Sean reaching Christ and discipled and becoming alive and raised up into being everything that he could be, throwing into question what is in existence isn't actually necessarily biblical, but served a purpose for a season. I think I'll leave it there. <laughs>